Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I'm going to read the first, sorry Rich, I'm going to read the first 12 verses with you um, and then lead us in prayer. This is God's Word. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart, in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word. I ask, Lord, that you would help me preach and explain it clearly. And I ask by your spirit and the just the miracle and, and foolishness of preaching that you would take this proclaimed word and allow it to find fertile soils of our hearts that you might work in us, that we would look more and more like your son, Jesus. Well, we thank you for that promise that you will do that. And I ask that you would do it, especially this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us a few weeks, you know that we're in this book study of Mark. We've taken a couple of weeks to get to this point, and now we turn our attention uh, to this section right here in chapter 2 that we've just read, and we see that a lot is taking place all at once, and the scene is being set for uh, Mark to display through his writing the bigness of Jesus, right? So... Jesus' fame had no doubt, as you can tell, spread everywhere throughout the entire surrounding region of the Galilean countryside in which he lived. Jesus couldn't go anywhere without drawing a crowd. And herein lies one of those ex examples and experiences. Even the place that he called home was no exception. So the story we're looking at this morning, It'll be very familiar to many of you, and, and heavens, it, it could be like, like one of mine. It could be one of those favorite stories about Jesus that's found in the Gospels. The entire story is centered within the walls of a home. 
And, and I've got a guess here, so you allow me a little bit of latitude, but it, it's, there's a good chance that this is Peter's mother-in-law's home. We were introduced to Peter's mother-in-law in chapter 1, right? Um, and even the home there where, where she was healed. But I believe, as do many people, uh, that this is the place, the location, that Jesus has kind of called his home base. So when, when Mark opens up chapter 2, verse 1, with this language, it was reported that he was at home. More than likely, it's more than just Capernaum, but this locale, this location uh, that, that involves where he's calling his home base when he is home, right? The entire story involves a huge crowd, a paralytic, some faithful friends, and frankly, some skeptical church leaders. I want you to put this in your mind over the next few weeks as we come to some of these different stories, but this story, this narrative, this, this vignette, as it were, that Mark presents us with is part of a larger context that begins here in verse 1 of chapter 2 and extends all the way through the 6th verse of chapter 3. And it'll be a series of five different stories. This will be the first one, and then just right at, just boom, 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 as Mark travels quickly with that word immediately, we'll, we'll come across these different things. And this larger section is made up of these five back-to-back controversial narratives. And sometimes you even hear them referred to as controversy narratives, right? And, and in this, Mark is revealing not only the greatness of Christ, but he's also setting the stage, right, for the growing tide of opposition that exists against Jesus. It starts right here. The next one, you'll see it again. The next one, you'll see it again. And that motif and theme will carry all the way through uh, the rest of this entire book, obviously, until... His crucifixion, right? But the scene is being set here, and as Mark is prone to do, he will address all of these quickly with very little warning. So that's what we see going on here. And right now, we're, we're jumping into um, uh, that first one. If you're a note taker, you might uh, include this as your first point, and that's this, starting there, verses, well, to include verses 1 through 5, friends carry. So I'm just kind of keeping this outline pretty simple as we talk through this narrative story, friends carry. We already have been told by Mark back in chapter 1, verse 28, that Jesus' fame was spreading everywhere throughout Galilee, but now he shows us specifically that this, this fame is growing. And he even mentions this word crowd. You'll see it pop up in verse 4, but he's, he's showing how his fame is rising at the uh, inclusion into this story with this tons of people. Now, I bring this up not to state the obvious, because, I mean, these four guys couldn't even get into the house because of the crowd, right? But I bring this up specifically to highlight the word crowd to you. Forty different times in the book of Mark, in between now and chapter 10. It's a 16-chapter book, so right, so right here, at the beginning of 2 into 10, Mark is going to utilize this word crowd, and he's going to do so to set the stage for a bigger theme and bigger picture, right? So get this, word is spread throughout Capernaum, and then when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it's reported that he's at home. You got the word crowd, and you've got the word home. 
Are any of y'all in this room old enough to remember an old commercial? I'm going to tie a bow around that thought that I just gave you in just a second. The old commercial about a financial advisor by the name of E.F. Hutton. Some of you kids are saying, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Well, E.F. Hutton was this guy, and whenever he would give financial advice, people would stop what they're doing and listen. And they would be eating at the restaurant, and E.F. Hutton would be talking over here, and they would lean in and just hear whatever he had to say. Well, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, right? Am I the only one that remembers this line? Well, just to give you a little insight into sometimes the crazy places that my mind goes, apparently... Where Jesus is, people gather. And wherever he's gathering, crowds, wherever he, wherever he is, crowds are gathering. So that when Jesus talked, it was to preach the word to whomever it was present to listen. Okay. Now on this occasion in Mark chapter 2, we see that so many people were gathered to hear whatever it was he had to say and frankly, to see whatever it, he was that he was going to do next, right? That so many people were gathered that there was no room to enter. So imagine this room. If there was only one entrance, which we have to assume there was because that's all Mark addresses, right? Into this house, that it's so packed in here that the people who would like to get in are standing at the door and you cannot access even the door, right? Fire marshals would have had a lot of fun with this. But it's so crowded that you cannot even get a glimpse at Jesus because the crowd is stuffed around the door. And, and Mark then highlights the size of this number of people in verse 4 by using the word crowd. So now let's tie these two things together with a point. In the Greek language, the word for home or house and the word for crowd is so close in how you read it, and even what it sounds like. You have to wonder if Mark is using a, a kind of a literary device here to get our attention. There seems to be a contrast in Mark's mind setting the table here with what he'll do for the rest of the time with this word home, where Jesus is, and this word crowd, the peoples who have gathered. The single most common characteristic throughout the entire book of Mark as it relates to crowds is that the crowds, the characteristic of those crowds are that they are used to prevent access to Jesus. And this is no, no exception, right? So he's, he's saying he's at home, intimate things happen at home. Typically it's in home where he, he might give the further details to his disciples of explanations of parable teaching, or whatever it is he's doing in intimate circles of home. But this home is so crowded by the crowd, not the same word, but it sounds like, looks like, that he's, he's kind of drawing a little bit of a point here. Setting this word house, home, up against this contrasted work of crowd helps make a little bit of a point for Mark here. Being a part of the crowd around Jesus, like being a part of a crowd at a church, right? But being a part of a crowd around Jesus is not the same as being a disciple of Jesus. And there's this temptation for people in a crowd who's got close proximity to Jesus, even bumping up against him, 
hearing about him a lot, crowding in at his home, for goodness sakes, Mark's laying this point down, to think, or to be fooled into thinking that I'm a follower. I'm a disciple. I am a faithful one, right? So just a little bit of an aside to set the table before we get into this narrative. Um, Being a part of the crowd is not the same as being disciples of Christ. By the way, this is a little hint into why Jesus would speak to crowds using parables, but he would explain the intimate details to his followers and his disciples. So relating this contrast to our story, this narrative of Mark chapter 2, as James Edward writes, the crowd stands and observes, but we're about to be introduced to disciples who commit themselves to action. We're supposed to see the contrast. And it's illustrated by the arrival of four faithful friends. So let's jump into the story. We're, we're introduced to these faithful friends in verse 3. And in typical Mark fashion, right? All we have by way of background for these guys are, are this, is this language. Look at verse 3 with me. And they came... And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Again, you kind of got a little snapshot into the recesses of my mind when I tell you that when I read that, I kind of think about some of the conversations that may have gone on among these friends. (laughs) What are they sitting around thinking? They've got, what they know is they have a buddy that is paralyzed, can't walk, palsied, he can't do for himself. He, he is utterly incapable of fixing his problem. And they're sitting around, and one of them may have said, hey, I think I may know a guy. Oh, really? Yes, I have, I have heard that this Jesus is not only this teacher that can draw a crowd, but I mean, he... He touched a leper and the leprosy was gone. And, 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 and you know, did you get kind of going around in the circle as these stories were kind of bouncing back and forth? Did you hear how Peter's mother-in-law was sick? And then he healed her and then she got up and started serving at this dinner party at the house. And in fact, I think that's where he is. And the more these guys, I'm speculating, but the more these guys kind of talk about this, the more they begin to allowed the faith that they were having in what they had heard about Jesus be transformed into faith that moves them to action. So they set out. And all we see here is they come bringing to him a paralytic. Now regardless of how their conversations went and what they said, maybe it wasn't as detailed as I just said, their faith is on display for us this morning. Their faith was a loving faith. Their faith was a persistent faith. Let me tell you why I think their faith was a loving faith, and it it doesn't require rocket science to think about it, but how could they have been moved by anything more to do what they did other than their love for this brother? Maybe, Maybe he literally is a friend that they've known forever, or maybe he's... maybe. He lives in one of their houses because he can't take care of himself. I don't get the sense that they're tired of taking care of him. 
I get the sense that they love this man deeply and they're willing to follow through in their love, loving faith to get him to the healer. To get him to the healer who's in town. So their, their, their faith is a loving faith and I see here that their faith is also a persistent faith. And I think this is part of where I begin to really love this story. I mean, when their, their friends decide, hey, let's grab a corner and take him across town to where Jesus is in the house. And when these guys get their friends to the house where Jesus is, they're confronted with their first obstacle, right? And what is that obstacle? We can't get in. So, I, you know, do you, do you yell fire in a setting like that so everyone leaves? They see the crowd and they just, are they creative? Do they think about it? Are all four of them in agreement with, you know, I've had this thought. But eventually they find themselves concluding that the only way we're going to get to Jesus, and by the way, nothing is going to deter us from getting our friend to Jesus, is we're going to get up on that roof. Probably Peter's mother-in-law, right? And then we're going to figure out a way from there. But our next step is to get on top of that roof. This is nuts. But this is faith that is loving and also persistent. They didn't let these obstacles keep them nor their friends from Jesus. And, and I've got to tell you, I have to be careful here um, because this story is about Jesus. Not about the friends. But the faith of these friends are important for us not only to notice, but to emulate and to grow in as believers and disciples, right? So I don't want to skip over that. So I want to linger just a second and and just kind of see what we might learn from these guys whom we know nothing about other than they have a faith that is a loving faith and a faith that's a persistent faith. Notice what we see next in our text. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Maybe we've read this story so many times that this ceases to kind of shock us a little bit. Shannon and I moved into our house here in Ringgold in February the prospect of one of you guys coming and knocking on my door at any time of the day or night is welcome. The prospect of you climbing up on my brand new roof and ripping it apart and deciding to slide one of your children down through the roof, probably less welcome. Here's Jesus. He's doing what Jesus does and he preaches. And I don't think he's a, he's not aloof and I'm, who knows how he responds. But as he's sitting, standing there, sitting there teaching with authority, the word, and, and he's going on and stuff hits him on the, you, you got to know there's a mess here. If you're Peter, what do you think about the brand new skylight that's in your mother-in-law's house? Faith does not wilt in the face of controversy. And faith doesn't turn back in defeat in the wake of obstacles. These friends had a faith that overcame obstacles. And they do what they had to do. 
I don't know the mechanics of homes back in Galilee. I could speculate over things that I read. All of that I know is the text is pretty clear. They're on the roof. They rip it open. They drop the dude down. Instead of being content to recognize and appreciate that these friends had great faith, I want to press in just for a moment and ask this question of all of us. How can we grow, have and grow in the kind of faith that overcomes all obstacles to bring our friends to Christ? First, I want us to understand as it relates to that question that the object of our faith is not to be in our ability to answer all questions when people pepper us with questions about our faith. It's not that we might have the perfect word to say or the perfect way to illustrate a point that we're trying to make them when they're, they're in our home or wherever they are that we're talking about the Lord. The object of our faith is not to be in our ability to explain things. The object of our faith is not to be in our ability to winsomely win a few. But the object of our faith is to be Jesus. The one that we're wanting our friends and family to know. In his book, Don't Just Sit There, Have Faith. Pastor Ron Dunn, who's with the Lord now, he was a friend of Wayne Barber's at Woodland Park, so he would interact some with us in Chattanooga. But he, he offered and suggested two cooperating methods to increase our faith. And I'm just going to remind them, remind these simple truths of you, so as you're thinking about this, how, how do I grow in my faith? He, he suggests two cooperating methods, and that one is knowledge, and the other is experience. Knowledge and experience. Talk about the first one first. Knowledge. Uh, knowledge of God Himself. Right? Psalm chapter 9, verse 10 says, And those who know thy name will put thy trust, their trust in thee. And so as not to linger, I would encourage you, as I heard Bill in the Sunday school, the last part of the adult Sunday school class today, it's not just knowledge of God Himself, but also knowledge of God's Word. Psalm 119 says that thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. But Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. When we sing some of the older songs of, and hymns of the faith, we do well to remind ourselves what people of old have reminded themselves for years, if not centuries. This song does not come from centuries. But, but consider the song that many, many of us sang as we were growing up in the church, how firm a foundation. And remember what we used to echo back and forth across the aisles of our church to remind us of the importance and the goodness of knowing God for who He is and knowing His Word. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. What more can He say than to you He hath said, to you who for refuge... To Jesus have fled. So not only do disciples who are wanting to grow in their faith and to stand firm in their faith and increase their faith uh, desire and work toward a knowledge of God and a knowledge of His Word, but also just to 
familiarize ourselves with the knowledge of God's works. Our faith is helped through the listening of the testimonies of others. That's why I'm, I'm constantly encouraging you to pick up, pick up biographies of missionaries and, and people in our faith past from whom we can, we can be encouraged on how they faced obstacles and did not see an obstacle as, well, God must be shutting that door. I mean, tell that to William Borden, who dies in Egypt of um, meningitis as we looked. Did, was, was God closing the doors all along the way? Tell this to um, people like Gladys Elward, who was not allowed, who was not accepted by mission agencies, so she found a way to get overseas by herself. Tell this to people like George Mueller, who led many orphanages without having a single dollar. He just prayed on his knees for faith that God would provide. Had they seen the, the obstacles and difficulties in front of them as well, the Lord must be telling us to stop or the Lord must be calling us to take a break, then who knows what would have not resulted that we look back on as God's hand of great kindness. So knowledge and experience, and I'll just touch on this briefly, um, it's this way. You and I learn to trust God by trusting God. My oldest daughter, when she was, I'm talking about tiny, um, and I'm just a young dad who doesn't know any better than to talk her into, listen, you see that high dive at the pool? You'll love jumping off of this thing. Trust me. I'm going to get in the pool first. I'm actually going to walk you up the ladder. We'll walk out a little bit off this diving board, and I'm going to jump in. And at the bottom, I've got you. Trust me. What a dumb dad. But as I watched my little... Shan, young, three or four year old child, stick her little pokey toes off the end of that board, looking down at me, wondering if this is a good idea. I don't think ever came to her mind because dad said, I got you. And she left off that thing and hit that water and plummeted probably farther than mom was real comfortable with. But when she came back up, it's the most fun thing in the world. And she learned. She was in the process of learning by experience that I can trust this man. And the Lord is kind in our lives to bring about situations and difficulties whereby we gain confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him. So as we're growing in our knowledge of Him, His Word, and through the experiences of, I'm sorry, from the, the faithfulness of others, uh, in, in life, we also grow in our faith through experience and we learn to trust God by trusting God and we will not trust Him until we have to. When um, in February of 2020, uh, things kind of went crazy with the mission agency world and travel and all those things and probably by May, uh, it was the only decision to make that I, that I and a lot of folks would not be able to keep our job there at the mission agency. And I remember sitting on the back porch, back patio, taking in this phone conversation. It's late at night and processing how I'd go in there and talk to Shan about it. And all of these things led to an eventual conversation I had with a buddy who had, been, uh, who had lost his job at a church years ago in Jackson, Tennessee. 
And when I'm sharing with him some of the things that we were doing to make some money to start paying our bills in that interim time, he said, Chris, there's a part of me that's super jealous of you right now. And I said, huh, Keith, tell me uh, what part of you is jealous about the fact that I have no job at the moment. And um, he said, because when the Lord was kind enough to allow me to experience that kind of desperation, I saw how faithful he was in our family and in our life. And I would tell you, now looking back through the rearview mirror, Shannon and I are blown away by the hand of God that showed up as, it always, as he always does. And had he not, he would have still been faithful. But he did. And it gave us more and more occasions to experience his faithfulness. Listen, it's only when a man comes to the end of his own little inch does he reach the beginning of God's infinity. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. Let's get back to our text here. Sorry for the sidebar. Getting back to our text, because these men believed that Jesus could heal their friend. They're willing to do whatever it takes to get to him, right? And Jesus proved that he could do even more than they hoped or imagined. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins. And if you are one who is willing to write in your Bible, circle the S at the end of the word sins. Son, your sins. It's, it's, it's almost as if Jesus was intimately aware of what sins he was talking about when he talks to this paralytic. In the same way that later he would when he's confronted with this woman at the well. And he encourages her with really the gospel and how to have living water. And at the end of that whole discourse with that woman, he says, hey, go get your, go get your husband and tell him. And he says, I'm sorry, she says, Sir, I, I have no husband. And Jesus says in response, you're right to say you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. And that led eventually to her running through the town saying, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Circle the letter S at the end of the word sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. What do you think is going on in the minds of these dudes who are lying on the roof? Because I imagine there's a hole now in the roof, brand new skylight. They've let their friend down. Who knows? The roof's only, who knows how tall it is? Probably not very tall, but guys down there. And, and I'm sure the guys are lying down on the floor just kind of looking in this hole. and said, watch this. It is about to happen. And he looks at the paralytic and said, son, your sins are forgiven. And they might have said something like, what did he say? Does he know why we brought him here? Hey, uh, hey, uh, Jesus. Hey, you know, that's cool and all what, what you just said there, but um, I need, hey, listen, we brought him here so you could help him walk. So maybe, you know, that whole sins thing, that's one thing, but if you don't mind, uh, 
How about getting on to why we brought him here? They didn't say that. But do you reckon they thought it? Because I think those thoughts, I just relate them through my own need. This is more true of us than we'd probably like to recognize or admit because it is so easy to believe the lie that the greatest problem that we have exists outside of us. Uh, Jesus, he, he really needs to walk. That's his issue. Lord, really do need a bigger house. Or, Lord, it really would be nice if you... But Jesus goes straight to the need. All of us, all people who have been born after Adam have as their singular, primary, and greatest need the forgiveness of our sin problem. And to be able to have the, the chasm that exists between a holy God and our rebellion fixed, and it can only be fixed by God through Jesus. But with this declaration that Jesus makes to this paralytic, is he still eye level on the ropes or is he on the ground? I don't know, probably on the ground. But with the declaration that he made to him, God is, I'm, Jesus is claiming to be God because only God can forgive sins. Only God can do what Jesus has proclaimed is happening to this guy because all sins regardless of the horizontal effect of those sins. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if, if Billy Bob right here is uh, um, doing something and I walk up to him and steal his cell phone, whatever the case, I have now sinned horizontally against my brother, right? However, all sins, regardless of the horizontal nature of them, are committed against God at the core. Only God has the right and the authority to forgive them. To kind of prove this point, I brought some friends that I'm going to introduce to you. There shall be no laughter at the friends that I'm introducing you to. This is Paddington. I was given Paddington by my one brother when I was in elementary school. This is Puddles. And this is Duke. I'd like for you to imagine these three as three people. Duke lives in my sock drawer because I don't have the heart to get rid of him. I've had him all my life. I'm using these guys so as not to use people from the pew. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's say, for instance, that my friends Paddington, Duke, and Puddles are all hanging out in the room. And Paddington, just out of a whim, gets up and just waylays on Duke. 
And before Duke can sit back up and say, dude, Paddington, I thought we were friends. Why'd you hit me? Puddles kind of leans up and says, hey, Paddington, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Puddles has no authority nor right to forgive Paddington for waylaying Duke. The only person in this scenario that can forgive Paddington for the offense levied against him is the recipient of the offense, Duke. But Duke could say, hey bro, kind of crazy, but I forgive you. When Jesus is in that crowded room, and he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching the word, faithful friends overcome obstacles to get their paralytic friend down to him, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. The only way he has right to forgive sins is if those sins committed have been committed against himself. And regardless of the horizontal nature of those sins, his sin and your sin and my sin are all levied against him. Which bring to bear into light the point of the story. The point is not limited to the faithfulness of friends. The point is not limited to the fact that Jesus is making claims of deity, which he is God. The point is not limited to Jesus is making claims to deity to even know what scribes are thinking before they say it. The point is to point us to something else. And we get to that next. Notice how in verses 6 through 8, the scribes scoff. Some of the scribes in the room, they had a place at the table or in the room. They said, hey, who does he think he is? He is blaspheming. Only God can commit. I'm sorry, only God can forgive sins. The latter part they were correct about. But the first part that they said, who does he think he is? He's blaspheming. Proved that they were as paralytic as the paralytic was. And until they have a God-graced, God-given softness of their heart to recognize that Jesus is who He says He is and that He could do for them what obviously Puddles can't forgive someone else's sins because it wasn't against Him, but that He could forgive the sins that had been committed against Him, they would remain paralyzed. So scribes scoffed. But notice verses 10 to 12. Questions point. Verse 10 says this. I guess I should actually address something that I didn't make note of, but verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, clearly it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because frankly, who can prove that? This is an internal thing that would have been going on had Jesus left it at that. And he could have said that if he's just some charlatan. But he is not just some charlatan. He's the son of God. And then he answers with verse 10. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He's speaking to the scribes. He's speaking to the crowd. Then he addresses his discourse to the paralytic. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This miracle is a means of grace. It's a means of grace for those who are in that room to see the evidence of the fact that this man is God and he can do externally and internally the miraculous. But it's also a means of grace for us because it has, it has the means, God-given means to impact our hearts this morning as it had the ability to do so in that crowded house then. That, per, that paralytic was utterly helpless to fix himself, both physically and spiritually, right? In announcing his forgiveness, Jesus is pointing to the coming cross by which Jesus would bear on himself and upon himself the sins of paralytics, the sins of pastors, the sins of fathers, wives, husbands, sons, daughters, bearing upon himself the sin of mankind so that all who would believe in him might be given the opportunity to be called sons of God and to be born again and to be made right before God. Listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 2. It's the only other place I'm going to turn to to read this morning and I do so as I close. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 an echo of what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. But listen to this. Think, think about this paralytic who's as good as dead uh, there on the uh, mat that he's brought in on. Think of us before we were awakened and brought to Christ and born again, if that's the reality of your testimony this morning. But notice verse, in verse 13, I'll read, I'm reading from Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you were, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did He do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal dem demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, the, in, the, uh, in Him. The full extent of Jesus' triumph over His enemies would be fully realized when He raised from the dead three days after His crucifixion. And I do not think it is accidental at all that Mark includes in this language uh, toward the latter part of this section in His address to the paralytic. When Jesus says, Rise, and he rose. Jesus would eventually rise, giving the occasion for spiritually dead people to be risen with him. The gospel is found in Mark chapter 2. Because Jesus came to accomplish what sinful man could not accomplish to themselves, or by themselves, forgive me. But there's also another gospel 
lesson for us to catch here. And, and I share this as I close. In the same way that those friends might have been tempted to think that his biggest problem existed outside of him, you and I, until we are face to face with Jesus, we're going to be confronted with the, just the frailty of our own hearts. Within us is this battleground going on where we're tempted to think that our sin is affected mostly by things from the outside. But in reality, our hearts are deceptive. And that which comes out of our mouths are starting right here in our hearts. You and I desperately need the grace of the gospel. And it's seen here. We need to be reminded that like the paralytic, our biggest problem is not that which keeps us on the mat. But that which keeps us tempted to think that we've got this. Or that which tempts us to think that we can handle whatever comes next. Or that which tempts us to blame our sinful flesh on something from the outside. Well, I wouldn't. Old Paddington wouldn't have reacted that way had Duke not spoken up first, right? Yet we need to be reminded of the gospel this morning that we might run to Jesus and recognize that it was for us He came. Not just so that we might be saved, but that by His grace, His word, His presence in us, we might be conformed more and more into the image of Him for the glory of God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to endure the cross. To take upon you and yourself our sins. We thank you for the power that raised you from the dead, victorious over our sins, so that we who trust and believe in you by faith might be born again to a newness of life. So that that which was old could be passed away and everything before could be brand new. And Jesus, I pray that you would work in us as disciples. That we might grow in our faith by growing in you and in your word and the, the knowledge of God. And to see the good gifts of grace, of experiences that are painful at the time how they're being used to, to grow us up into you and into the likeness of your image. Would you keep doing that work? Now, Lord, I'm, I'm just mindful that there are folks in the room who may not know you, who may be skeptical saying, who is this Jesus guy? 
And there may be guys, people in this room who are hearing about you for the first time this morning. And the fact that you would take on their sin and pay for it is staggering them and causing their heart to say, I need what he's talking about. Or would you continue to work in their hearts and lives that they might be open to hearing more about you and responding to your, your call to be their children? Would you do that even this morning? And would you put it in their hearts that they might press into conversations with believers in this room of how can I experience and receive what he's talking about right now? Would you do that in spite of us? For the sake of your great name and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.